0: This is The Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman. Brought to you by the Academy of Dental CPAs. Whether it's taxes, investing, or planning wisely, art is your guide to make your dental practice as profitable as possible. Here's your host, Dental CPA Art Wiederman. And hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman, CPA. Uh, I'm glad to be with you today. I am Art Wiederman. I'm a dental-specific CPA. I uh, work in a dental-specific CPA firm located in Tustin, California. We have about 250 dentists that we work with, um, mostly in Southern California, but uh, we have some in different states. And I am also a proud member of the National Academy of Dental CPAs, which is 24 CPA firms across the United States that represent over nine thousand dentists. Great organization of of men and women. And today, I have a real treat for you. Uh, again, as I've told you throughout this series, and again, we're approaching one year. Uh, December will be one year. I cannot believe how fast the time goes. Uh, it's been a great year. I turned sixty this year, and uh, in fact, today I had a real milestone happening. To play played golf with my uh, with my guests today, and. Uh, as you'll see, he's one of the smartest guys I know. I shot the lowest golf score I ever shot, which is 81. I, I was uh, I did real well. Got uh, eight eight uh, pars and uh, uh, either one or two birdies. I don't remember, but uh, that was really fun today. And doctors, do you know how when you uh, general Dennis I'm talking to now, do you know how when you um, you have a case and it's a really challenging case and maybe there's a uh, endo involved and maybe there's some uh, move you know some some moving teeth and some prosthodontic uh, issues and you have a specialist that this is this is your go-to doctor your go-to guy your go-to lady um who is the doctor well that's who you're going to listen to today my my dear dear friend pat wood is a dental specific attorney pat's practice is located here in orange county uh, he 's been a dental specific uh, attorney for thirty five years and before that he has a, a he was a real estate attorney i 'm going to let him tell you a little bit about uh, um, his story but Pat is my go to guy if I have a problem, I have a client that 's going to maybe get in trouble uh maybe they 've got a sale that went bad maybe there 's a partnership that 's going bad. I generally call Pat and you know how when you when you talk to some people. And you get an answer, you you need an MIT grad to interpret the answer. When I get an answer from Pat, it's in English, and I go, oh, that makes sense. So what we're going to talk about today with Pat is we're going to talk about some of the basic agreements that doctors work with. Uh, We're going to talk to our younger doctors and doctors who have associates. We're going to talk about associate agreements. Uh, And we're also going to talk about purchase and sales agreements when you're buying or selling a practice. Uh, I mean, we can talk about partnership agreements, we can talk about leases, and uh, if we did that, the podcast would last about 17 hours, so we're not going to do that today, and I'm sure Pat, Pat will be back. Um, so before we get to Pat, I want to give you a little information. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me at my office in Tustin, California, uh, my phone number is 714-259-0505. Uh, if you want to email me a question, a suggestion for a guest, we've gotten some really good guest suggestions from our listeners um that's art weiderman at gmail.com uh so all of the podcasts are on our website which is www.hmwccpa.com go to the resources tab on the uh, on the uh on the website and go to podcasts and you can see them all you can download them all uh you can also subscribe to the podcast uh, please subscribe uh, you can do that through your um, uh, your iPhone, your Android, on YouTube, I believe, uh, and um, th- there's lots of ways you s- can subscribe. Please tell your friends. We have gotten some amazing, um, amazing uh, response to our podcast. It's growing exponentially every week, and if you're looking for a dental-specific CPA anywhere in the United States, if you're looking for one in Southern California, that would be me. We do have a great firm in San Diego, Drew Hendricks Firm. Uh, I cover pretty much the rest of southern California uh up to the Central Valley uh, in our ADCPA group. Uh please go on our website uh, which is www.adcpa.org. So with that I want to introduce uh our guest. Again, Pat Wood has been a dear friend of mine. We we have uh in 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 southern California as do the ADCPA members in their areas. Uh, I coined a little phrase years ago called our little dental fishbowl. And in our fishbowl we have you know we have several you know very good dental attorneys, we have uh, dental CPAs. Uh I know I know all the players, dental attorneys, dental CPAs, dental management consultants, uh the bankers from all the different um banks that do dental specific lending. We have equipment representatives. It, it's a uh, it, it, it's a great world and it's really fun when we see each other like at the California Dental Association uh we have a cocktail party usually one of the banks puts on a really nice cocktail party at a nice restaurant and and everybody gets together and everybody is friendly and yeah we're friendly competitors i have accountants that they're trying to get business and i'm trying to get business but but the fact is we all have the dentist's best interest at heart as does my good friend pat wood so just a little bit about pat pat's been a dental specific attorney for 35 years, he went to UCLA undergrad and Southwestern Dental, uh, Southwest, I'm sorry, Southwestern Dental. I'll be all right. Uh, Pat will have to tell me if uh, if a dental school has a law school, but Southwestern Law. So anyway, Pat Wood, welcome Thanks. to the Art of Dental Finance.
1: Thank you, Art, for having me on this uh, show, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'll just give you a, a little quick background on myself. Um I did start as a uh, rent, uh, real estate attorney forty years ago. Hard to believe it's forty years, but and thirty-five years ago, I uh, was introduced to dentistry. I had a uh, group full of dental brokers who attended one of my seminars. I had never heard of a dental broker. I thought I had misheard the individual, and I asked him again, "What? What do you do?" and that's what introduced me to this world and um so my firm uh, consists of two partners and two associates uh i've been doing this as you know forever uh i have a silent partner named chuck delgado chuck was with me for a number of years he retired some some years ago um, jason wood my son has been with me for 14 years and uh, what he and I have done this entire time is represented only dental and other medical professionals in their business affairs. We're not malpractice attorneys. We're people that are trying to help the dentist and, and the medical people to get through their daily business activities so that they stay out of trouble. And so that's uh, pretty much how we do it. Um The other two associates that we hired uh, one's been with us for quite a while he handles uh, uh litigation um, and you'd be surprised how many dentists like to sue each other and then we have a, a fairly new associate uh, he actually was in the lending business uh, for a short period of time uh, but Justin is his name and he uh, is doing a great job for us so all in all we're very happy. And I will tell you that, that
0: obviously not only, you know, the, the firm's name is Wooden Delgado, and we'll let Pat give his information out a little later. Uh, but I not only know Pat really well, but I know his son, uh, Jason. And Jason is, uh, to be real blunt, is one of the smartest uh, attorneys I've met. Uh, he also has a lot of great answers, a lot of great ideas. Um, he is very client-oriented. And um, uh, again, the two of them are a, a great uh a great team. So it's it's great to work with Pat and Jason. Uh, also, Pat, and we're not going to get into this much today. Pat has a specific expertise in the uh, DSO area. He works nationwide. And so if any of you have questions about, you know, you have a DSO, you're thinking of forming one, uh, he'd be one to give a call to. But let's start, Pat, the conversation today. Uh, I want to go to our, our our senior doctors who are either thinking of or have already hired an associate uh, and to our younger doctors who are coming out of school, uh, and and I want to talk about associate agreements. So let's talk about some of the important things that should be in an associate agreement, and and maybe some tips on how not to
1: get into trouble. Well, of course, it depends on whether you're the employer or you're the associate. And all right, so let's start off with with for the employer. Yeah, if you're an employer, don't just pick up some form that you got from somebody that you think might work for you. It's not a good idea. Um, very, uh, the very, the associate agreements are dependent upon the kind of work the doctor is going to be doing for you. It depends on what state you're in. Um, for instance, in about 45 states in the country, covenants not to compete in associate agreements are enforceable. Uh, there are a few where, where they are not, including California. Um If you put one of them in there and they're not uh, appropriate, uh the judges typically will throw the entire agreement out. Now, you may think, well, that's not such a bad thing if it gets thrown out, but you generally are going to have protections there that say that the associate can't take their patients with them. Uh If the agreement is thrown out, then, of course— the associate can take them and, in fact, can directly compete with you. So it's state-specific and, and, um, you know, you can certainly give me a call and we'll give you my info and all, but um, it it, uh, uh, is something that uh, you really have to know which state you're in.
0: Now, Now, so, Pat, I know there's covenants and I know, again, I'm not an attorney, I don't play one on TV, but uh, you and lots of other folks have taught me enough over the years. I know that a covenant has to be reasonable in uh, distance and reasonable in time. So um, for the folks that are not in California, and then we're gonna get in, I I do wanna cover California and some of the other covenants we can have. But for the folks that are not in California, what's a reasonable time? I I actually had one attorney who said to me, my client wants a covenant that will cover Arizona, Nevada, um, Colorado, and Utah. And I said, I said to him, I said, "Why don't you just make it Planet Earth, and you will have no problem." And he said, "Well, well, that's that's ridiculous." And I said, "And you're telling me four states is not so?" So Pat, what is reasonable for a, an area and a time
1: frame? Well, first off, let me tell you, I can top the Art. <laughs> i had a I had a closing uh in Arizona, and the uh attorney for the the buyer wanted a covenant not to compete across the entire united states right nice. and I said, well, you know it, that's not how they work, but if you want it, we'll give it to you and the gentleman uh said okay great let's let's do that now I know that these things aren't going to be enforceable generally they're not enforceable if the patients are not coming from the area where you have the covenant. Now, if you are in an area like um, South Dakota, you may have to go 50 miles to get to a a dentist. And so a 50-mile covenant would be perfect in a situation like that. If you're in downtown uh, Manhattan, uh, you might find that a three mile covenant could actually be excessive, so it it really uh, it depends on where you are. Um, I actually had a, a case in uh, downtown l a and it involved not a an associate agreement but a purchase agreement and The agreement said basically that the uh, the, the seller could not compete within ten miles of the area in downtown. Um and the buyer uh fought the associate, fought the seller on that and uh we actually went in front of the judge and the judge said you know I looked at your zip codes and everybody comes from the same zip code which are maybe 2 miles uh, in distance and so he basically he he said no the covenant is really uh no good uh, but we'll give you a 2 mile covenant so it varies so, so Pat, so let's say we're in
0: an area where a covenant not to compete is allowed, and let's say that one of the associates doesn't think, doesn't, you know, thinks that they're invincible, thinks that nobody will sue them, and they leave, and they violate the covenant, and they open an office within, you know, two blocks. What is generally, walk us through, what, what happens? Because I, I want the I want the associates to hear this, and I want the
1: senior doctors to hear this. What is normally, what is a judge going to say? And this is in an area where uh, covenant not to compete is enforceable in the associate agreement? Yeah. Okay. Um, what uh, what the judge is going to do is say, what the heck are you doing uh, violating this? <laughs> um, but uh, generally, what the process is, you file a complaint against the associate. And in it, you say they violated certain terms, including... Typically, uh, the covenant not to compete and the trade secret provisions. And if they've contacted people, um, you're obviously going to want to know who they are and, and what they did. And uh, you ba- your basic strategy there is to get what is generally defined as being a um, uh, an order from the court Saying that they cannot operate in that location and that they have to honor whatever the enforceable terms are of the covenant, which are, you know, generally they're going to be 10 miles, uh, could be five miles. Again, it depends on where you are. So I'm assuming that if we sue the associate and the associate is taking
0: the patients against the covenant, that's legal, um, uh, how do we figure
1: damages out? Good question. There's no good answer. <laughs> what you have to do, and and I will say, it's hard to get the patient to cooperate. The patient has no interest in helping the former seller, owner, um, and so they're going to be difficult. And so um, what we often do is we put in a large monetary penalty if they violate the covenant it could be 50,000 it could be 250 it depends on the kind of uh, practice that you have and we also try to get the injunction if they won't allow the injunction for god knows what reason uh at least you would have the monetary penalty
0: okay so let's talk about we have a lot of listeners in california and you said there's maybe three or four or five states that, that uh, covenants are not legal. We are going to talk later about uh, purchase and sales where covenants not to compete actually are legal when you transfer a business. But so um, in this situation, Pat, don't, don't you guys put in some other covenants that that protect the, the doctors? And, and how much do they protect? Do they protect as much as a covenant? But talk about some of the covenants you put in in states where their covenants
1: not to compete are not legal, like California. Um, yeah. The, the uh, other provisions are basically trade secret provisions. And what they say is that uh, uh, the individuals cannot uh, go after any of the senior doctor's patients. And that if they do that, that uh, you will have a penalty of some kind. Um, You can either state what the penalty is, or you can uh, instead say that uh, it's according to the actual damages that you can show that you suffered. Okay, so we put in there the covenants. Now, what
0: about, let's put your uh, hat on that you're representing the associate. Does this young associate finds a doctor and uh, maybe it's a large group practice? Because again- I'm sure you represent a lot of uh, associates who are going to work for uh, some of the nationally known, I'm not going to mention any names, the nationally known um, group practices, or uh, there are lots of doctors out there, as we know, that are, you know, forming group practices. Um, I mean, group practice depends on who you talk to is is approaching 20, 22% of uh, of all dentistry. So there's a lot of, you know, tens of thousands of practices where they're hiring lots of associates and they're out of school. So so you're now representing a young associate who's going to go to work for a group practice. What do you want to do to protect that associate?
1: Funny you should mention that. <laughs> Funny you should mention that because I teach at several of the uh, dental schools. And uh, uh, the question that the seniors always ask me is, uh, should I sign an associate agreement? And my answer is routinely, no, don't sign it because it's not written for you. It's written for the owner. And so um, if the day ever does come uh, where you're asked to actually sign it, um, I tell them to try to make it a reasonable covenant. Uh, I, you know, I let them know that uh, they should have a carve out for people that they bring to the practice so they can take those people with them. Certainly family members and others would be able to uh, go with them. Um, and so the, the trade secret provision, which encompasses a number of covenants, uh, uh, basically uh, is enforceable in just about every, it is enforceable in every state. And so whether you have an enforceable covenant or not, you can always have a trade secret that's going to protect the doctor's patient base. So, and
0: again, you, you work with, uh, I mean, you, you've seen hundreds, probably thousands of these agreements with the large companies out there. And if the associate says, I won't sign, will they just say, next,
1: I'll go find the next associate? Or how does that seem to work? Well, I think that is a function of where you are and how many dentists are available, to be quite honest. Um, You know, if it is somebody in South Dakota, not to pick on anybody in South Dakota, but um, if you go to a state where it's fairly remote and there aren't a lot of dentists, uh, very often you can tell the, the owner that you're not going to sign one of those, uh, and then it's up to the owner. Um, generally, uh, I, I hate to say this, this, this is not meant to cast aspersions on any of the doctors out there, but... A lot of uh, owner doctors don't even bother with associate agreements, and they find out, unfortunately, that those they should have had those agreements in play so that they could uh, keep the associate from taking the patients. Um, covenants, uh, trade secret provisions, are, are not something that are just assumed by law. They have to be something in writing, that the parties have agreed to. If you can keep yourself from actually signing one of those things, then you're going to control whoever you see if you're going to be uh, wanting to do that and, and feeling uh, that you want to compete with the seller. So
0: let's talk about something that you and I have talked about. We talked about it a little before the show is uh, insurance billing. And uh, sadly, uh, in this country, uh, whether it's medical, dental, chiropractic, acupuncture, any of the, the, the medical or dental professions, we unfortunately have bad players who commit fraud. And that is the real world. That is life. That is a fact. And uh, so um, let's talk to the young associate. And the senior doctor says, well, you know, I'd really like to bill using your uh, your number, your dental number. Talk about that for a second and some of the dangers there.
1: Well, if you're an associate and you're hired on so that you can bill to uh, a particular dental plan that the doctor doesn't want to use, um, there are some ways you can actually do that and get around it. Uh, It's a little complicated. I wouldn't recommend that anybody do that. Um, If it's just the situation where the associate is asked to do it. Um, I, I would, st- if I were the associate, I would stay clear of it. I, I would even, uh, uh, quit the job or start looking for a new job because if you're allowing others to bill under your billing ID number and you're not doing the work, that is fraud everywhere. And so you don't want to get caught in, in the fraudulent scheme. Now, what you could do, and we're doing this right now for somebody in Massachusetts. Uh, He has uh, a large space, it's got two addresses, and he doesn't like taking a certain kind of or kinds of insurance, and he asked me, what what should I do? And I said, very simple, have the associate who's going to be the uh, provider for these different programs that you don't want to participate in, uh, be the actual provider, sign up as if he is, in fact, the owner, because he will be. Uh, the owner of the patient records. And then he can actually go out and he can bring all those patients in and treat them. Where you run into problems, however, is where you put down that a patient was seen by you when in fact it was not seen by you, it was seen by another doctor. Always a problem, you want to avoid it. That,
0: that's right. So uh, let, let's let put a bow on associate agreements. Anything else that we should talk to
1: buyers or sellers about regarding associate agreements? Well, there's so many different ways to set up what the, the compensation is. Um, some people want to do it uh, where they pay up per diem. Uh, they pay them five or six hundred dollars a day, maybe even less. Uh, others do it, uh, where they get paid based on their production, others on their collection. Um, maybe it's a, a compensation, uh, compensation structure that uh, includes, uh, both a per diem guarantee and, uh, an overflow for maybe at 30% that you collect in a, in a given month. That works well but you should be careful and you should look at that and you should talk to a dental attorney.
0: And you know, I'm going to touch on this very briefly. We've touched on this in other, other shows is uh, some of the senior doctors are going to want to pay you as an independent contractor and some are going to want to pay you as an employee. Uh, it would be nice if someday the Internal Revenue Service just put something in the Internal Revenue Code that said, this is the rule. They have not. Now, the Supreme Court came up with a test uh, recently uh, in a case called Dynamex. And and what that was is that was actually a limousine company where literally, and I read the case, literally someone woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm sick and tired of paying these payroll taxes. I'm just going to flip this thing on January 1 and pay everybody as independent contractors. So they came up with uh, an ABC test, and the, the B test is the one, maybe we can just chat a little bit about this, Pat. The B test basically says, if the person that you hire does the same service that you do in your business, they're an employee. So for example, if you hire somebody to clean your office and you're a dentist, well, they don't do dentistry. They clean offices. They're not the same. They can be an independent contractor if they have their own business and they meet all the tests. So I, I'm sure you never get that question, Right.
1: Um, We, of course, get that question all the time. Um, That was sarcasm. That was sarcasm. I'm
0: good at sarcasm. You
1: are good at that. Um, The Dynamex case uh, is an interesting case. It was actually a California Supreme Court case, so it's only applicable in California. But um, basically, it says that if you do hire that person uh, and they do exactly what you do, then you have to hire them as an employee. But most of you, probably, if you're a general dentist, are going to have a perio. You might have a, an oral surgeon who comes in occasionally. You might have a, um, a any different uh, specialist in there. And that's, that's fine. You can do that all day long, and you're not going to have a problem with it. But if you do what a lot of my clients try to do and hire them to come in two, three, four days a week to do exactly what you're doing, you're going to have a big problem with the state of California.
0: Exactly. All right. So, what I want to do now, because we're going to kind of switch gears and start talking about purchase and sales agreements and the sale of, and purchase purchase and sale of a dental practice. Before we do this, I would encourage you guys, if you are looking for a dental specific attorney, and it's like anything else, I'm a broken record. You should use a dental specific CPA uh, like myself or someone from the Academy of Dental CPAs. Uh, if you're looking to do anything in dentistry, and 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 ladies and gentlemen, any time anyone puts a legal document in front of you, have an attorney look at it. I am going to come and haunt you if you don't, because it's just I, I, we, Pat and I could spend days telling you stories about bad things that happen, um, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, about that. But so what I want Pat to do now is to give out his contact information for him, his firm. Uh, and, and his group. Uh, so if, if you have a question, even if, you know, y- under no obligation, just give Pat a call at his office and
1: he will, uh, he'll help you. So, Pat, uh, give out your contact information, please. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, you can look at us on the web if you want. It's dentalattorneys.com. Uh, we've got a website that, uh, pretty much shows, uh, not only what we do, but what we have done, uh, various uh uh conferences that uh we've participated in. Um we have a lot of written articles uh in there. But uh you can also contact me uh at pat at dot com. That's pat at dot com. And you can also uh call us at eight hundred four nine nine one four seven four. That's eight hundred four nine nine. One, four, seven, four, and um just to kind of uh, touch on what Art said, we do work in all fifty states um, and uh, we, you know, I don't care where you are uh if you want some information uh, if you want something that relates to your business that is legal in nature, feel free to call us, we do free consultations, you can decide who you want to use, but don't. Fall for the gee! I have to see my attorney in person because uh, we see maybe one or two percent of our clients in person. Everything—it's such a different day from when I started doing this forty years ago. Um, you have the internet and you have podcasts and other uh, ways to communicate. Uh, so don't don't let where we are uh, fool you. You can definitely talk to us and we can give you good advice. And again, you know, when you're talking about using
0: an attorney, let's talk. I mean, we're talking about associate agreements. We're going to talk about purchase and sales agreements, uh, an office lease. Again, that's a whole nother podcast. Uh, we actually had the people from Car Healthcare Realty on the phone talking about on the, on the podcast talking about, you know, that, but they weren't talking about the legal aspects. We're not going to get into that today. Again, it's an, it's an hour show folks, uh, partnership buy ins and buyouts. What if you get. What if you get sued for malpractice? There's all kinds of things that a, a dental specific attorney can can work with you work with you on. So I would encourage you to give Pat a call. All right, Pat, so let's switch gears now. okay. So now we have a uh, and, and and folks, you also know not only am I a dental CPA, but I'm also a, a dental practice broker. So again, Pat and I not only work together on CPA type legal issues like you know partnership buy-in and buyouts. Uh, but you know Pat will be the attorney either for the buyer or the seller of a practice that I might be selling. So so folks without going through and we've done shows on on you know what what is done in a sale. So generally the first thing that is done once a buyer and a seller agree, uh, you know buyers' gonna pay five hundred and fifty thousand dollars for seller's practice and this is doesn't include the receivables and all this stuff. And now we're going to enter into a letter of intent. So let's start with a letter of intent. That's the generally the first legal document other than the, the seller is going to sign a listing agreement with the broker and then and the, and the buyers are all going to, should be signing non-disclosure agreements. But once we get the buyer and the seller together and they come to agreement, talk about what, what a letter of intent is and, and why it's important and what should be in it.
1: Yeah, the letter of intent is designed to set forth what the parties have agreed to. And it's not meant to be a binding agreement, but rather an agreement that sets forth what you're going to pay for it. Uh, It might set forth what your purchase price allocations are going to look for. Uh, You're you're going to be looking at buyer and seller. Uh, It'll have a closing date. Uh, It'll have contingencies for things that have to be done, like reviewing books and records um but it's it's intended to get the basics out there and i'll tell you and uh, you know our our firm has represented more than 6000 dentists in the last 35 years so we've had an awful lot of these uh letters of intent that have gone out there and i can't think of more than two or three where people actually said no i know i agreed to that but i'm not going to do it so i think it's really important you get as much in your letter of intent as you can so that you know exactly what you're both agreeing to. And if you're a seller and you want to work back, you better have that in there. If it's not in there, you're probably not going to be able to work back. Um, so uh, what I'm saying is uh, contact uh, a dental attorney. Contact us. And um, as you're reviewing these things, uh, be aware uh, of the fact that there are a lot of brokers that will tell you these things are not binding. But they write them so that they are binding. And so you have to be very careful as to what you're signing because you may say, yeah, I'm not bound. I don't have to do this. And the judge will later say, yeah, you had to do that. And so I'm going to fine you or do whatever the judge is going to do. And it's interesting. One of the other things that I do in the letters of intent that I prepare
0: is we talk about Delta Premier, now, this is a real thing. In most of the um, in, in most of the um, states, uh, Delta Dental will no longer allow a buyer of a practice to assume what's called the premier only rates, which are the higher favorable rates um, that uh, uh, that dentists have been getting over the years. So, a dentist might have to might be getting eighty five to ninety five percent of their usual fees. And now when they sell the practice to the new, the seller sells it to the buyer, that buyer is maybe only going to get 50 or 60%. So when we represent sellers, and again, be aware, folks, and Pat will comment on this in a second, some brokers are dual agents. In California, you can be a dual agent. Uh, I am not. I'd cut my left arm off before I would be a dual agent. Uh, I represent the seller, and in the letter of intent, I put a provision that says Hey buyer, you're signing this thing. it's not quite written like this, but but this is the gist of it. Hey buyer, you're right, you you're signing this thing. You you understand that seller's got uh Delta Premier and that you might take a re- might get a reduction. We're not going to represent how much that's going to be cuz we don't know. It's very very difficult to do that computation. I've talked to consultants, I've talked to bankers. Nobody can come up with a with a firm number. They try, but I say it's up to the buyer. So comment on that for a second.
1: Well, it it is a real problem in California because Delta has uh, been trying to get rid of the premier program for a number of years. um, And they actually had to go to the uh, insurance commissioner of California to change their their rates. Uh, And and really, it's less than 10% that are premier only. So um, what you have to be careful of is that most of the dental brokers in California are not going to even mention the delta issue it is an issue we've seen people that we know that have gotten sued and successfully sued uh because they were deemed not to have sufficiently advised the uh buyer of what the effect would be so Um, Delta Dental uh, is and will remain an issue. Uh, It'll go away over time, but for now, it is a problem, and we've had a lot of lawsuits.
0: And and it could also be in other states because Delta has uh, 37 different entities uh, all over the country. Um, So, Pat, we talked a little earlier about covenants not to compete. So, now, I know that covenants not to compete are legal, in certain instances, when we're talking about selling a business, talk about how that works.
1: Well, uh, and this is uh, na- nationwide, uh, it pretty much works this way. Uh, if you sell something that is a significant asset of yours, that asset uh, that the buyer is buying needs to be protected. And there has to be what is deemed to be a protectable interest. And the protectable interest, of course, are the patient's. And so you want to build a covenant into every sales agreement um, that makes sense. It's got to, it can only deal with the current patients that you have. It can't be patients that the buyer develops later. Um, and it, it, it's really hard to try to uh, quantify what your damages are. So, I generally am going to write up something that has the uh, restraints uh, that uh, would allow the seller uh, to, to actually be shut down if he violates the covenant. Now, I've got one that I want to just popped into my head. So
0: what if you've got a seller who's got multiple offices? He's got an office or she's got an office uh, on Elm Street, and then they've got another office that's
1: four or five miles away. What do we do there? That's a problem. <laughs> and it's a problem for the dental practice lenders. And if you're in an area where the drive time is four or five minutes, the lenders have a tough time uh, believing that the people don't go to both offices. Um, I generally tell people don't have something that is very close to your existing practice. If you want to branch out and you want to have multiple offices, you're going to have to do it in areas that are remote from where the area is that you're running your current practice. And so, uh, it, but if you try to do what Art is talking about and have something that's nearby, the only way you're probably going to sell it is to sell it uh, as a, a a group of practices that you're selling to one buyer.
0: Okay. So now I know that I, you know, I've bought and sold real estate. Pat, you've bought and sold real estate. You were a real estate attorney for many years. So we have this thing called an escrow. Now, sometimes we have to use an escrow in a dental practice sale and sometimes we don't. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. Um, when you're in a real estate situation, a escrow has to uh, do a lien search. They have to figure out what is owed to whoever the current lender is. Uh, they have to see if there are county uh, or state uh, liens against the practice. Uh, they have to make various computations. Um, in our world, however, the lender who's generally loaning 100% of the money that goes into the purchase price, uh, they have a big And really unprotectable or almost unprotectable interest in that they only get a lien on the dental equipment. They don't get a lien on the patient records because of HIPAA. And so if somebody violates that and walks away with all those uh, patients, uh, uh, the lender is basically going to end up with nothing. So um, what I'm saying is that uh, when you are dealing with a lender, the lender knows that they have to protect themselves. And so they're going to conduct all of these lien reviews to make sure that the liens uh, are not of record against the practice so they can sell it and then be in a first position. So I generally believe that unless you're dealing with SBA-type loans, which are government-guaranteed loans, and they require an escrow, I generally think you don't need an escrow in a dental practice sale.
0: Well, but
1: what what if the seller's paying, ca- what if the buyer's paying all cash? If a buyer's paying all cash, and that's a great point, then I would definitely run it through an escrow because you can't do it uh, as a buyer. Uh, probably your attorney can't do it. And the people that can are going to be the escrow people. So uh, that would be a place. Yeah,
0: that, that'd be a time that we would want to do it. Okay, so... I get I <laughs> I get everything Pat's worked with over 6000 uh buyers and sellers and dentists in his in his practice. So, um, you know, I always get someone who'll say, "Well, okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to have the other attorney draft the agreement because that's a lot more work and that's going to save me tons of legal fees." Uh
1: but so who who drafts and how do, how does that all work? Well, th- there is a custom that has grown uh, that I've seen in the last 35 years where Uh, it's really up to the seller to supply that document. Many times it's coming from the broker who puts it together. Uh, Many times it comes from the seller's uh, attorney. Uh, It's very unusual for a buyer to have an attorney do that. And uh, if I was the seller, I think I would tell him, I'm not going to use your your attorney's uh, form. And by the way, Legal fees aren't that expensive when you're talking about just drafting that agreement. It's all the collateral things that take up time. Those are the things that are, that are going to cost you. Um, and so, so don't be afraid, and especially don't try to use somebody else's document yeah. that they've used.
0: Oh, oh my God, that was my that was literally my next question. So, I, I've had two deals in the last year, and they go, okay, so so Art, here's the deal. I'm going to use my buddy's document. He he had it drafted by an attorney. Was it a dental attorney? I don't know. But it's drafted by an attorney, and it worked. Uh, okay. So how long have they? How long is the transaction? Been? Six months, and nothing's happened. Well, it's only six months. So talk about using the, the, having dentists who are getting together and saying, you know, oh, we, we don't need an attorney. <laughs> this is a loaded question for an attorney of 35 years who's dealt with 6,000 dentists. All right, so so give us your opinion and
1: and and don't let your head explode. Um, this could take hours. <laughs> there are two. We don't have hours, and we don't have those hours. Let me just give you an example of a deal that I'm currently working on. It's in another state, it's actually on the east coast. The buyer came to the seller and said, uh, "Here's a contract. I want to buy your practice. My attorney prepared this." And uh, it actually um, was a practice, uh, a buy-in to a practice where uh, the client would acquire a one-third interest. And so me representing the seller, uh, I said, well, I'll, I'll look at it. But, you know, it, it really should be from us, but I'll look at it. And, you know, I try to. I, uh, if people think that's going to save money, we'll certainly uh, see if we can work with them. Well, I got the contract. And the contract was not written uh, by somebody with any background in uh, dentistry. Uh, There was nothing in the contract that dealt with the issue of what the purchase price allocations are, which I'm sure Art has talked to you at length, that those are very important. At length. And that if you don't cover those, you really can't expect somebody later after the deal is done and everything has been reported to then change the allocations to suit whatever one of the parties want so you have to have that in there another thing they did not have in or they they wanted to have in there is that there would be a covenant not to compete in an employment agreement that the partners would sign and i i asked the attorney I said well i, I why would you have this and he said oh everybody has it and so i sent him a case <laughs> And I think Art was the one who was kind enough to give it to me many years ago. But it was a gentleman up in uh, Washington, and uh, he signed a covenant not to compete with himself in his corporation. And then he tried to write that off as a personal uh, sale of uh, personal goodwill. The tax court shot him down. He lost, and uh, I heard he was working at Costco when I left. And that case is United States versus Howard. I call it
0: the Three Stooges case because Larry Howard was the balding middle. You know, you had Mo, Larry, and Curly or Shemp or whoever your favorite Three Stooges are. And uh, so the name of the dentist was Howard. So I call it the Three Stooges case. It was just do not ever have a covenant not to compete between yourself and your corporation because you're transferring your goodwill to your corporation. And then you're subject to double tax, especially if you're a um, a C corporation. Pat, talk about working with dental specific attorneys versus
1: non dental specific attorneys. Well, if you work with somebody who does the same thing that you do, you're both going to know what the issues are. Now, you may adopt a different attitude uh, from what I want you to adopt, but at least you understand the issues. And so, um, and if you work with these people enough, uh, you usually are able to come to an accord on certain things, uh, and, and it really makes it easier because you are working with somebody with the same background. When you go outside of that, particularly if one side has a person that is really a litigator and not a business transactional attorney in the dental side, you, you very often find you end up in a, in a lawsuit over this because the litigator uh doesn't necessarily understand all the issues, um, but they're quick to pull the trigger. And uh, I, I really uh, recommend that you, if you're going to use an attorney, get somebody that is actually a dental attorney. Make sure you check their references. Ask who they've worked with before. Look at their website. Make sure that they're actually dental attorneys. There are a lot of people out there that are not. And the fact of the matter is,
0: is that again, you know, Pat's on our program today, but there are in Southern California, there are other very good competent dental attorneys and we all know each other. We all work together and we all have a job to do and we're all very, very professional. Uh, we got a little bit of time left. Let, let's hit some other things in the purchase and sales. What about redos and remakes? How do we cover those in a purchase and sales agreement?
1: Yeah. Uh, redos um, don't have to be that complicated, um, but sometimes they are. Uh, it, I think the first thing we do is we look at what is the statute of limitations in that state for bringing a lawsuit against, uh, the dentist for work he did. It generally is going to be one or two years. And so we're going to set a uh, limit that matches what the state's action is. Anything beyond that is just going to be a breach of contract and that'll be a return of money. Um, the, the, um, Other things uh, that we uh, do when it comes to that um, is, uh, you know, you just try to find somebody uh, that is willing uh, to pay you. Uh, If the seller is willing uh, to come back into the office and do the work, that's great. It's all on them. If they're unable or unwilling or they're even deceased, Then you need to have a covenant or an agreement that says that the buyer can do it. And then you set a, a a limit on how much that is. Generally, I put anywhere from 30 to 50, 60%. And uh, the seller also, in addition to paying that, has to pay the, the lab fees. That's generally what works. So when we talk about due diligence, okay,
0: I always teach buyers, it's buyer beware. Okay, you have to do your due diligence, and how many times have you and I had conversations with dentists and say, oh, well, I bought this practice and they misrepresented." Well, did you do any due diligence? Well, well, well no, The I, I didn't have time, or I, I couldn't, or I, I didn't think it was necessary because he seemed like a nice
1: person. Talk about that. Well, I would say that you need to have somebody looking at the books, the records, the computer system where the patients are coming from. And the, the best way to do that is to hire somebody. We work with somebody named Kathleen Johnson. We're very happy with her work. Um, and she can usually spot things that uh, others can't. Um, but you also need a CPA to take a look at the records, uh, take a look at the tax returns, take a look at checks, uh, checking statements, uh, and make sure that everything they're representing actually is true. So I'll tell you a story. My, my dear, dear friend and partner,
0: Pam Chamberlain, Pam and I've worked together for 30 years. Pam gets a pediatric dental practice that she's doing accountant's due diligence on. And Pam doesn't just look at a tax return. Pam is looking at fee schedules. She's looking at computer reports. She's looking at bank statements. She's, she's looking through everything. She's, she's just going through with a fine tooth comb. And, um, she says, you know, doctor to the buyer. You know, 80% of the revenues from this pediatric dental practice are from um, IV sedation cases. Uh, can I ask you a dumb question, Dr. Beyer? Do, do you do IV sedation? And she says, no, I don't. And then Pam says, well, that means that 80% of the revenues from this practice, you will not be capable of duplicating. And she says, oh, well, nobody told me that. So, these are things why you, you, you really need to do due diligence in a, in a dental practice, both management due diligence and um, also accountants. Pat, let's talk about the representations and warranties in a contract. Um, what are some of them
1: and why are they important? Well, you want the normal representations and warranties that there are no liens against the practice. That the seller has no lawsuits against him, has not been subject to, uh, state, uh, dental board, uh, actions. Uh, you want to have representations regarding the equipment, uh, regarding the employees not suing the, the seller, um, uh, there are probably 25 to 35 different reps that we put into our contracts that pretty much cover everything. We really haven't had problems in all these years with these because we do a pretty comprehensive, uh, uh, set of, uh, representations that if they're not true and later they turn into, uh, a lawsuit, uh, you're generally going to win, uh, as the buyer because you've been misrepresented too. All right. I'll
0: put you on the spot here. Craziest thing you've ever seen in a dental practice sale. Can you come
1: up with one or two out of 6,000 off the top of your head? Maybe. Well, you know, that depends on the, the day and the week because there's always something crazy going on. Um, i I really I, I can't uh, okay. give you anything that, that is uh, spine tingling but uh, I can tell you that there are a lot of crazy deals that go on out there that um, uh, are are just difficult to believe yeah no
0: I, I believe that and that's why it's important to have have an attorney so we got a couple minutes left so last tips we're gonna go buyer and seller okay. For a seller, what can what are your top couple of tips? We might have covered them to make sure that everything that that, that they have the best possible opportunity of success in a transition and and, and in, on on your end, that they don't get sued. What's
1: the what's the best advice you can give them? Well, I like to see sellers that are transparent that disclose everything that might be important about the practice so that they don't have that lawsuit that they uh, could potentially face. Um, I like them to make, you know, we were talking about Delta uh, Dental earlier, the premier program. I make sure that's in every contract. Um, I, I try to make sure that the covenant is going to work for the seller. Um, you know, you uh again we we come up with these crazy covenants that people put in there that nobody can live by um and so uh i just uh, try to create something that is going to work for the seller uh i get people like art to come in and get purchase price allocations that'll be favorable to the seller uh so that you can write off your million dollar uh uh um pur- uh, sale price uh, in a tax friendly way where you hopefully are getting mostly or almost all of it as capital gains. Here, here's one that popped into my head. Sellers who don't collect co-pays. How does that work? That that does not work well. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't work well because if the seller doesn't disclose that and the buyers, all the, the, the new buyer now has people coming in saying, well, uh Dr. Seller never charged me that. Uh why are you charging me that? Well, guess what happens? They go and they find a new doctor that is willing to do that. And so you generally are going to have a lawsuit. I've we have been in so many lawsuits involving that because that can be a significant uh, deterrent to people staying with the practice. And so if you buy the million dollar practice and suddenly People go away because they don't understand why you're changing things. And that's not just in, in the area of uh, copays. It's anything uh, that that is changing. People don't like change. They don't like coming to a dental practice and seeing all new faces. It's bad enough they have to deal with a, a new uh, a dentist, but if they're not seeing their typical uh, staff, they're not seeing the same dental hygienist, dental assistant, uh, the person at the front desk, they're going to be uncomfortable. So my advice there to you, if you're a buyer, is keep them, keep them for at least six months, uh, transition your way uh, if you need to, to get rid of them, but don't do it quickly. The, the other thing I will tell you, and I've said this
0: before to buyers, do not let a seller a broker, an attorney, anybody push you, force you, uh, strong arm you into anything that you're not comfortable with. I mean, Pat, how many deals have you blown up because you just it didn't feel right when you are representing the the buyer?
1: Well, you know, you you our job is to make deals work. It it is not something that is always going to work. Um, you just have to get the issues out on the table and see what the seller is willing to do about the issues. But if you don't have an attorney who even knows what the issues are, you're not going to get that out there and you're probably going to end up with uh, an unhappy buyer. So I try to uh, school them as much as I can about the important things. And uh, especially, gosh, uh, we do a lot of partnerships and um if, if somebody's buying into something and they have no control whatsoever over it and it can be changed in a whim by the senior partner probably not the place you want to be at same thing with purchase agreements so the bottom line folks and we're just about at the end
0: of our time is everything that you do between a buyer and a seller partners associate senior doctor whatever it is it involves legal documents and I, I just Please, 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 please! Don't not use attorneys because it's going to save legal fees. Don't use your buddy's agreement because it's going to save legal fees. Don't use your second cousin, third uncle, fourth removed as your attorney. Who, when you say to them, how how many de- how many times have you had deals with dentists? Well, I go to the dentist twice a year. That's not what you want to hear. You want, you want to be working with someone who is a specialist. So one more time, Pat. Um, and thank you for all the great expertise. Thank you for your friendship over the years. I mean, Pat has been so forthcoming and and helpful to me personally, our CPA firm. Uh, and I will tell you many of the dental fishbowl members in our dental community here in Southern California by helping them with their legal issues on some of the things that we do to work with dentists. So I want to thank you. So much for that. I it, it's so great that that in 35 years in the dental industry I have developed such fantastic friendships. Uh you know Pat and I go golfing regularly and and we go to dinner and 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 I've made some really great friends. So he's not only a fantastic attorney but he's a great a great person. His son Jason is of the same mold. So uh, if you have any opportunity and you need some help, give him a
1: call. So, Pat, one more time, give out your contact information, please. Sure. And th- thank you for the kind words. Um, yeah, uh, you can contact me via the internet. You, uh, my email address is pat at dental com. My phone number is 800-499-1474. And, uh, Uh, just know that the first call is going to be free. So don't be afraid to call me. Pat Wood, my good friend, thank you so
0: much for uh, taking the time today. And I hope the information has been helpful. Uh, One more time, ladies and gentlemen, if you need to get a hold of me anywhere, um, call me at 714-259-0505. That's my office number. Uh, Please give me, uh, send me an email if you want to comment about the podcast or anything you want to ask. Uh, at um Art at gmail dot com. Uh look at our website which is com. Go to the resource tab, you'll find uh, and then go to podcast, you'll find all the podcasts. Um Pats will be up here in um uh early November of 2019. And if you are looking for a dental specific CPA and Just like with working with a dental attorney, ladies and gentlemen, working with a dental CPA is so important. We just had our dental CPA meeting in Dallas, Texas. Actually, it was in Fort Worth, Texas. It was absolutely wonderful. I love seeing all my friends from the Academy of Dental CPAs. I mean, we we talk about cutting edge stuff. We were talking about research and development credits for dentists and whether we feel comfortable that that would pass the... Uh, the smell test with the Internal Revenue Service, and we're still talking about that. We're having conference calls with a company about that. That's the type of stuff that we talk about. Go to www.adcpa.org. Pat, thanks again. Really appreciate your time. And ladies and gentlemen, that is it for this edition of the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman. Please tell your friends about our podcast. Please subscribe, write a review, uh, spread the word. I'm really proud of the work that we're doing.